Good morning. My name is Kevin. The second Bible reading today is following on from our first Bible reading. It's Exodus commencing at chapter 5, verse 1. So please turn with me to this passage and follow on as I read. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, The people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept passing them saying, pressing them saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday, or today, as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, 
May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. Our friends, let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Exodus 4. On the inside of the newsletter, you'll find an outline that might be helpful to follow along. If you'd like to take notes, uh, that's for you. Uh, let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to you and engage with your word, help us to see, Lord, that we are indeed engaging with the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday was the coronation of King Charles III. It was a fascinating ceremony, extremely fascinating. Uh, Ollie asked before, how many people watched that? Can I ask that again so that I can see? How many people watched? At least half of us. That's good. Well, what do you see? Well, it was a wonderful, fascinating ceremony of, of all pomp and ceremony and procession and royal fanfare and choirs and organs and and then all the different regalia, the, the orb, the swords, the ring, the glove. It was fascinating. But what do you think it, it all represented? What do you think it all highlighted to the watching world? There were perhaps millions upon millions who watched the ceremony yesterday. What was highlighted? You see, what was highlighted, if you look at the liturgy, the order of service, I downloaded it during the week and read through the prayers and the oath and what happened and what they sang. If you look at all of that, what was highlighted? Well, you can't help but notice that though the focus may have seemed to be on King Charles III, it was in fact upon God, the King of Kings. It was in fact a recognition of the one who was his king. You notice that throughout the service. Let me point out a few of those items to you. Many would have missed this, but it was a recognition of the King of Kings. How did the service begin? Well, you see, when the king entered Westminster Abbey, he was greeted by a young chapel royal chorister. And what did he say? We welcome you in the name of the King of Kings. Who is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus. It was in effect saying to the king, you are king today, but there is a king above you. Do you notice that? Or the first gift that was given to King Charles III. It was given by the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And what did he say when it was given? Well, the first gift was the Bible. And he said, sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here, in this book, is wisdom. 
This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. You see what that was saying? Your king today, your ruler, your lord over the United Kingdom, over the Commonwealth. But you are a man who has to obey this book. And then the oath. Do you recognize what was said? Do you hear what was said? The oath was, will you, to the utmost of your power as king, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion, the Protestant faith? Your commitment as king is, in fact, to Christianity. And also, the anointing. Now, do you notice that bit, the anointing, those of us who watched it? That was the part they had to do in in private, in secret. The screens were taken out. And that's because, they say, that was the most sacred part of the service. The king was anointed on his head, on his heart, and then on his hands. And it was to symbolize that he was chosen and anointed by God himself. That was the very heart of the coronation service. And so your place, king, O king, your authority is given by God. It's not from within, not from yourself. It's given by the king of kings. And though the service, there were all sorts of different religions represented, world leaders, it was a thoroughly Christian service. The Bible was read. God was prayed to through Jesus Christ. Hymns that reflected scripture were sung. And so it was making clear to the world, we may not see it, many would have missed it. Millions. But it was making clear to the world that the rule of King Charles III must be one where he acknowledged the true King of Kings and the true Lord of Lords. And of course we pray that he will and does. Now you might be wondering at this point, what has all of that got to do with Exodus? Well, I just wanted to share that. No, it does have something to do with Exodus. You see, the coronation service demonstrates to the world the Christian worldview. This is what Christians believe. That above every ruler is God himself. Above every king, every emperor, every prime minister, every premier is God himself. And so though there were perhaps millions watching the coronation, not many people would know Who is this Lord, even though they heard it? Even though they saw King Charles III go on his knees and pray to God? Well, what we find in this passage is that very question. Who is the Lord? Who is the one who really rules? Who is the one who is above all human rulers? Who is the one who commands obedience, allegiance? And who is the Lord who can be trusted? That's the question of this passage. And so let's now turn to this passage. Exodus 4. Now by this point, Moses, he has encountered God. In the burning bush, God revealed himself to Moses. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. And from that moment on, Moses' life was never the same. It's never the same once you encounter God. And so we come to this passage, and now Moses was given a command. He was given some instructions. Look at verse 21. When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now I know that in some of the growth groups this past week, 
you were wondering, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean for God to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that he will not let the people go? I thought the very point of sending Moses was so that he will let the people go, so that Moses will take him out of slavery. But we come across this, this, this phrase about 20 times in the next few chapters. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes we read, Pharaoh will harden his own heart. And sometimes we read, his heart is just hardened with, without knowing well how, from whom. And so which is it? Was Pharaoh stubborn? Or did God make Pharaoh stubborn? Well, do you know what the answer is? Yes, both. It is both. Both is true. Though it seems like a contradiction in our minds, it's not in God's mind. You see, God is absolutely sovereign. This is what we learn in Scripture. God is absolutely sovereign. He is the Lord of lords, King of kings. He rules over all. He is king, absolutely sovereign. He ordains all things to come to pass. But his sovereignty does not negate or nullify human responsibility. So you've got God's sovereignty and you've got human responsibility. Both are true. And both are held together in God's mind perfectly. It might be hard in our mind, but both are held in God's mind perfectly. You see, it wasn't as though God twisted Pharaoh's heart. You know, Pharaoh, he's such a nice guy. He really wanted to let God's people go. He really wanted them to, you know, worship God. Not at all. In fact, he was stubborn himself. That was who he was. But yet, at the same time, that was ordained by God. You see, what we see here is a bit like what we reflected on a few weeks ago. Remember that? You've got the seen reality, how we live, how we make decisions. But then you've got the, the unseen reality from heaven's perspective. From the seen realities of Pharaoh's life, he was just a stubborn man. He will not let anyone tell him what to do. But from God's perspective, it was God's will that he would be like that. So both are true. It was at the same time Pharaoh's will and at the same time, God's will works together perfectly in God's mind. But what God was doing here was he was preparing Moses. You're going to go back to Egypt, but it won't be easy. It will not be easy at all. Just be prepared. And remember this, God says, verse 22, Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now, let's reflect on those two verses for a moment. What did God reveal there? Because it was a new revelation. You see, from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of God, the relationship that God had established with Israel was a father-son relationship. They were not naturally, perfectly God's people, not at all, but by God's choice and will, God adopted them as his son. It's the first time Israel has been described in such a way. Out of all the nations in the world, I'm picking this one. Israel will be my firstborn son. And you see, God was hinting here. He was hinting to Pharaoh, you mess with my son and I'll mess with yours. You mess with my son, you're messing with me. And so you can see why the major theme of Exodus, what we reflected on in the first talk, 
is God's unrelenting commitment to save his people for his glory. Why? Because his people are his sons, his children. It's, it's really the story of a father's love for his children, what he would do to save his children, to protect his children. That's the covenant that God has made to the forefathers, that they, out of all the people in the world, they are the covenant people. They are God's son. And we need to understand that to understand what happens next in this next part of the story. It's very strange if, if you recall when it was read before. You see, Moses, for some reason, he was almost killed by God. Do you notice that? Strange, very strange. But then his wife, Zipporah, very quickly took out the flint knife, circumcised his son, touched Moses' feet with it, and then all was okay. Now, what are we to make of that? Extremely strange. You see, Moses was called by God to lead the people out, but yet he was almost killed by God. What are we to make of this? Well, it's no accident that it was here. It's recorded here so that we would learn something. And I think this was what was happening. God was making clear to Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel, the people are my covenant people. And the sign that they are my people was the sign of circumcision. The sign that God gave Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to mark them out from the rest of the world. This people, my firstborn son, they are a circumcised people. And so God was saying to Moses, why do you then, Moses, treat your firstborn son like an Egyptian, like a Midianite, like an outsider? You see, Moses was meant to be part of the community, but he was living or treating his son like they were outside the community. And so God was saying to Moses, are you in or out? And so by circumcision, he was shown that he was part of God's people. Now already we're getting a hint which we'll see later in in Exodus and it looks forward to the New Testament, a hint that blood was required for him to be on the inside. I think that's what's happening here. And so Moses is being given a command to show Pharaoh and to show the world Who really is the Lord? Who is the one who really rules? Now we come to chapter 5 and we come to the confrontation between Pharaoh and really not Moses but God. And we come to that famous line, you know, put into that song, the famous song, Let my people go. You know that song? There is a song, Let my people go. But if you have a look at what Moses said, It wasn't simply just let my people go. That's not all he said. It wasn't just let them go so that they might enjoy freedom, so that they might wander off and do whatever they like and prance around like deers and live for themselves and run free. Not at all. It wasn't let them go so that they could do whatever they want. What was it? It was so that they could worship They're set free from slavery, not so that they could be free to do whatever they want, but to worship God. You're not freed for anything but for God. Look at verse 5. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. 
Now, do you see what was happening here? The problem wasn't merely that they were slaves of Pharaoh and they were oppressed and abused and exploited. Of course, that's bad. But the heart of the problem of their situation was that they were slaves to the wrong master. And until they are freed to be God's slave, until they are freed to belong to God, to worship God, they'll never really be free. You see, it's only when they come under God, belonging to God as God's slave, then they'll truly experience fulfillment, satisfaction, completion. And that's simply because they were made ultimately by God and for God. That's how you experience freedom, when you live in line with how God has made us. And that's true for us today as well, for every single soul. We don't ever experience freedom until we align our lives and our affections and our hearts and our desires with God because we were made for Him. I mean, we've been fed a big fat lie by our world, by our society, that you can be your own person. And if you are true to yourself, that's when you're really free, that you can be autonomous and independent and self-defining. That's a big fat lie. Because you see, at the heart of every single person, we are all a slave to something. Or we are all a slave to some master. And we'll spend our life serving that master whether we know it or not. Take for example, some live for beauty. That's their master. They may not know it. But if I live for beauty... It eventually becomes enslaving. Beauty is like the the tough taskmaster. You see, if I'm worried about my beauty and I spend hours thinking about my beauty, doing something about my face and my hair and my clothes and my weight, and I spend thousands of dollars on it, I, I keep on chasing. In the end, I'll never be satisfied because I still look like me. I look in the mirror. You haven't changed. You've got the same face. What has happened is I've become enslaved by it, unwittingly. It could be beauty. It could be money, big one in the Western world. It could be the approval of peers. It could even be good things like family. They can be tough taskmasters. I mean, I might think I'm in control. I think I, I might have my own choices. But at its very heart, I've been owned. It was what Bob Dylan's Grammy-winning single from decades ago, Gotta Serve Somebody. Anyone know that? Bob Dylan, long time ago? One person. (laughs) You see, he got it right in that song. In that song, he says, you might be an ambassador. You might be a rock star. You might be an executive, a, a champion. But in the chorus, he says, he says this, or he sang it. You've got to have to serve somebody while it may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you're gonna gonna have to serve somebody you see we're all a slave to someone to something whether we know it or not it's either God or anything else and here God wants them not just to be freed from slavery but to be freed so that they might worship God where they might find themselves where they might find fulfillment and completion 
Their freedom was to worship God. And so now how did Pharaoh respond? Well, he was the supreme ruler over the land with wealth and power like no one before. Well, you come to a rule like that with a question like this, what did he say? Well, it's a question I think that's reflected today. He says in verse 2, Who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now, he wasn't saying that as an atheist, like, I don't believe in God, and I know no God, and I don't believe in God, that God. He wasn't saying as an atheist. He was saying that, responding as, as a polytheist. In the pantheon of gods, there were thousands of Egyptian gods. I know so many of them. I don't know your one. Why should I obey this one, and this one has no claim on me? You see, in the ancient Egyptian world, they believed in thousands of gods. The sun god Ra... Osiris, the god of the underworld. And it's why the plagues next week, which we'll consider, God was showing Pharaoh that all your gods, they are nothing compared to me. God showed power above all those Egyptian gods. In fact, Pharaoh himself saw himself as divine. And so what we're seeing here was a clash between God and Pharaoh. The clash of the gods, Pharaoh or God. The confrontation was, who is the Lord? Who is really in charge here? Who's really ruling the world? Who is the one who commands service and obedience and worship? Now, of course, Pharaoh had no idea who he was up against. But he was enslaving the very children of God. But, of course, God did warn Moses. Moses was warned before he went back to Egypt. And then what happened? Well, we saw the story in the kids' talk before. Things went from bad to worse. You know how the saying goes, from the frying pan into the fire. And if you notice the play on words here, it's important to pick up. It was a battle between who really is the Lord? Who is the ruler? And so Pharaoh, he throws his weight around to show that I'm the Lord. I'm the ruler. I'll make them work harder. They'll have to supply their own straws to make the same quota of bricks. I'll make them work harder. And so verse 9, if you have a look, make the work harder for men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Do you see what he was saying there in verse 9? One, he's calling God a lie. Your God, he does not know what he's talking about. Don't trust in his lies. But here's the play on word. The play on words. In verse 9, the word work, work harder, that word, it can be translated as serve, to serve, to serve harder. It's in fact the same Hebrew word that was used early on in chapter 4, verse 23, when God says, let my son go so he may worship me. We translate as worship there, but it's in fact the same word. Now, what do you think that was, what was happening there? What, what was Pharaoh trying to do? Well, he's in a sense saying, they are working harder, they are serving harder, they are in fact worshipping me. I'm Lord. You see, it was a battle between the gods. 
Pharaoh saying, I'm God, the Hebrews are my servants, not yours. They serve, they worship me. I tell them what to do, and they do it. And so things go from bad to worse for the people of God. And you can understand why they did what they did. It was not what they expected. Pharaoh couldn't see why he should obey God. The Israelites could not see how they could trust God, and so they blamed Moses. They blamed their spiritual leaders. Brick-making, hard work. Only a chapter earlier they'd bowed down in worship, but now they're blaming their leaders. Verse 21, have a look. May the Lord look upon you and judge you, Moses, Aaron. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. I mean, they exaggerate a bit there, but they were not happy. And then what did Moses do? It goes up the chain. You know, so when you make a complaint to someone, it comes out and it comes back, eventually it goes up the chain. Moses accuses God now. Verse 22. O Lord, why have you brought trouble? In fact, the literal word is, why have you brought evil? Why have you brought evil upon this people? Is this why you sent me? I mean, think about that. What an accusation laid against God. Why are you evil, God? This is all your fault. You see, the question at this point for Moses and the people was, well, can they still trust God? Can they still trust the Lord? And you can understand why they reacted in such a way. Moses thought, I was doing everything God told me to do. But now it's all gone to rubbish. And I wonder whether we can resonate with that as well. We try to do right. We try to be godly. We try to be faithful. We try to be righteous, obey God, do what he says. But things just don't turn out the way we expect them to go. When God's plans don't match with ours. I do what is right, but they turn to rubbish. I'm an honest person. I try to be humble, and I speak humbly. But then what happens? Well, the promotion in the workplace goes to the guy who's all boastful and is just lying through his teeth. I miss out. Does that happen? Or I've tried to obey God, and I will only marry a Christian, which meant I have to turn down several suitors. But where, where has that led me? Well, I'm still waiting. Did you bring this upon me, God? Or well, I've done my best in raising my children in the instruction of the Lord. But they've walked away from the church. I did what was right. God, did you bring this upon me? You see, the question for Moses is also a question for us. Will I go on trusting the Lord and trust that he's still in control? Does he really have my best interests at heart? Or is he on about doing evil? Is he really the Lord of Lords? Well, God responds. And what did God say? I mean, you have to admire God at this point because he's so, so gentle, so patient. I mean... I get frustrated when someone whinges and complains to me. I just want to zap them. Gone. I mean, God could have done that. But God's so patient. 
God, in a sense, says, my name has not changed. And my commitment has not changed. And I will act. Things will get harder. But you are still my son. And so God reveals his name once again. He says, I am Yahweh. I'm the Lord. Verse 2, verse 3, 6, 7, 8 in chapter 6. I'm Yahweh. That is, I'm present. I'm self-sufficient. I'm eternal. I'm ultimate reality. I mean, imagine if God at this point decided, oh dear, I did not expect Pharaoh to be like that. I didn't expect him to be so stubborn. I, I better change my commitment now. In fact, I better change my name. It's not I am, it's I may or I might or let me just think about it. No. God remains, I am who I am, Yahweh. And so the point to Moses was, nothing has changed since you encountered me at the burning bush. I'm still committed to redeeming my people from slavery with a mighty hand and you will see it. And you will see it, and the world will see it, who really is the Lord. And Pharaoh's power will eventually be broken. And so Moses, Israel, my son, will you still trust me? Will you still trust that I'm the Lord who rules over all? And you see how that is so relevant for us today? Because isn't that a question for us today as well? Eventually, we'll see, Pharaoh will finally discover who the Lord really is. It wasn't until about the ninth plague before he realized. But the world has changed so much since the time of the Exodus. I mean, back then, God was unknown. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh questioned. But today, God is no longer unknown on the world stage. When you ask who is the Lord, you can find out. You can't find out today. I mean, we come back to the coronation service yesterday. If anything, it displayed to the world that there is a king of kings and a lord of lords who rules above every human ruler. When King Charles III bowed down on his knees and prayed to God, he was showing to the world, hopefully he realizes, and I'm sure he does, that there is a God he worships, and that there is a God that the world must worship. I mean, the anthem that is sung, God saved the king, what does that show? I mean, it shows as powerful as the king may be. He needs to serve and obey the king of kings, and he depends on the king to save him. He requires saving himself, just like every other soul. And the king, yesterday, declaring that he will serve, he'll obey, he'll be like his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was interesting, at the very beginning of the service, when King Charles III was welcomed, he responded by saying, in his name, that is, in the name of the king of kings, and after his example... I come not to be served, but to serve. Did you hear that yesterday? He was recognizing, I must follow in the footsteps of the true king. 
He says, since the Exodus, God has made himself known to a world back then that did not know God. And how did God make himself known? Most publicly, most gloriously, most clearly. It was in sending his son Jesus Christ into this world who did come not to be served, but to serve. And we see God, in fact, hint at it a little bit in this passage. You see, in order for God to redeem his firstborn son, what did he have to do? He will take the firstborn son of Pharaoh. Remember that early on? God will kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh. But then what happened when God came in Jesus Christ, in his son, at the cross? In fact, at a very different coronation to what we saw yesterday. A very different one. The coronation yesterday, gold, glitter, royal fanfare, a royal throne. But the throne of the Son of God was a bloody cross. Yesterday, royal robe, robes galore. But for the King of Kings, naked upon the cross. Yesterday, big crown jewels. Diamond encrusted crown. But the crown for the King of Kings was a crown of thorns. You see, a different coronation, but at the cross, what did God do? He gave his firstborn son for us so that he might die in our place to redeem us for God. My firstborn for all of you. And so God, who was unknown, is now known on the world stage. Millions heard it. But the real question is, do you really know who is the Lord? Who is the Lord to you? Because it's a world of difference to know about the Lord. Many heard about the Lord yesterday, millions. But to know the Lord like Moses. Because if you know who the Lord is, we would live differently. And our view of this world will be very different. You see, when things go from bad to worse, like what happened with Israel, working the bricks, what do we do if we really know the Lord? Do we do what they did? Complain and whinge and blame God. Or when God's plans don't match with mine, what do I do? My plans for my holidays, my plans for my relationships, for my work, for my life, if it doesn't match up, God's plans doesn't match, do I still trust in the Lord? Or when God seems to take so long to answer my prayers. Just this past week, I met with a fellow minister friend. And he was, we, we meet once in a while and we pray for each other, and he was reflecting on the heartache of seeing his teenage kids not really engaged in the things of God. He's a minister. Surely he's raised his children in the instruction of the Lord. But it seems like God is taking so long to answer my prayers. Do I still hang on? Do I trust him? Or when the first sign of trouble comes, hardships, difficulties, and there are many amongst our church family, do I give up? A few years ago, I remember one from our congregation, shortly after becoming a Christian, shortly after, was diagnosed with cancer. 
Now, you can just imagine how, how hard that would be. You can imagine even non-Christian friends. I mean, you just became a Christian. Look what happened to you. I mean, where is your God in all of this? Don't you blame your God? I thought your God loved you and cared for you. You're just wasting your time with all this Jesus business. But she persevered in faith. She continued with hope, with joy. I know the Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. And she continues to hold on to him. Because who else is there for her to go to find a love that would look like the cross? And so this is what we need to learn for ourselves, but also to teach, especially our younger ones. I remember when our kids were a bit younger, school, and often as parents, when they start going away and eventually they'll go away further and further away, you feel like you're losing control. Do you ever feel that as a parent? When they started to go to school and one of our kids talked about being bullied in, in one of the toilets and it was a horrible story. You feel like you can't help. What do you do? Hold on to the Lord. Remember that there is a Lord who rules. There's a Lord who you can turn to. He said, do you know the Lord? You live in this world differently. You see this world differently if you do. Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, you know. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for what you have done in making yourself known, in redeeming your people by giving your Son. Help us, Lord, to never fail to trust in you, to cling on to you, to never give up. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.